listening to the Soil Talk podcast. I am your host, Tim Mundorf, Nutrient Management Lead with Central Valley Ag. In Soil Talk, we will dive into managing soil fertility and applied nutrients while pursuing top yield. So Mick, it's about time for harvest, and we know our, our growers as they're going out there, uh, you know, seeing how the program went this year, getting some yield data back, making some decisions about next year. One of the first things we're going to think about soil fertility, we do a lot of fall fertilizer application. As the growers assessing this program and, and kind of thinking about where he's at and, and how things went this year, what are some things you want them thinking about as you talk to them as an agronomist? You know, one of the things I want them to do is assess that avail- that variability out there in that field. Are we catching that variability? Are we treating that variability within the field uh, spatially with our fertilizer? Are we hitting the mark? Certainly, you and I have been out in some fields where We've been grid sampling. Maybe we weren't. We're missing some things that were happening in those fields, at with our grid points. Do we need to make some shifts to that? Do we need to take them to an, a a step above grids to a smart grid type program? Uh, where do we need to go to improve that fertility across that field and taking into account that variability? Uh, are we fertilizing those poor areas enough? Or are we fertilizing them too much for what they can produce? Uh, those are the things that I like to think about, especially as I am in a combine going across the field. Yeah, you know, that surprises a lot of growers when they look at their soil test results. Sometimes the fertility is actually the opposite of the yield map. And it, where the yield is high, it's pulling off more nutrients, and it's been that way for years, just for whatever reason. You know, maybe it's a little better piece of ground, maybe the way it lays, whatever, how it drains. Things that don't really have anything to do with fertility affect yield. And because of that, there's higher removal there. And when you've got a blanket uh, fertility program, you end up over-fertilizing the poor yielding areas and, and under-fertilizing the good areas. And the fertility map, whether it's phosphorus or potassium or sulfur, a lot of times looks the opposite of the yield map. And sometimes it's hard to get a guy to wrap his head around that. Exactly. And, you know, honestly, Tim, you think about flat rating across an 80 or a quarter. Uh, you and I both know that that's not the right thing to do. That's not m- making the best use of our nutrients. Uh, we have different ways that we can handle that. We can handle it with zone sampling. We can handle it with grid sampling. We have now came out with ACS composite samples this year where we're actually laying a, laying out some variables out in that field and, and capturing composite samples that are more accurate than what we've done in the past where we take a, a quarter and divide it into 40s. Now we can go out and we can we can specifically sample areas in that field based off of some past production and uh, some characteristics of that soil. Yeah, the technology's come a long ways. You know, I've always been a fan of grid sampling um, and, and it's still a good program. You know, those two and a half acre grids, just make a grid of the field and go pull the samples in the middle of that square. But we've got opportunities to do better. I mean, we can make zones based off of data like LIDAR, you know, mainly elevation. We can make zones based off of uh, crop health, you know, satellite imagery type maps. And taking those zones in there, laying them over that grid, and then maybe moving that sampling point to somewhere where it's not right on a boundary going into a different zone, that, that does make a lot of sense. And that's kind of what our smart grid program is all about. And like you alluded to, you know, these ACS composites, we're calling them, 
there's an opportunity to take that same information that we already have, that's that plant health, that soil, you know, variation that we see from satellite imagery, the topography variation, and at least being a little smarter about our composites and making them match up a little bit with, with different zones gives us more of an opportunity to variate. I mean, when you take three composite samples off of a, you know, a quarter or an 80, there's not much opportunity to verbrate because you really don't know where those boundaries and fertility are. You usually just end up averaging out a bunch of numbers. And you can tell as you look at the numbers, it probably doesn't make sense to just average them because you're not taking into account the variation at all. You see it, but you're not doing anything with it. If we move that into zones, we can at least do something with it and fertilize accordingly. Exactly. And get a little, you know, let's get a little more bang for our buck. In, in terms of fertility, <clears throat> utilize that fertility to our advantage. If we've got a low produ producing area, why are we pouring the same fertility as we are in the high producing area? Let's utilize that money elsewhere in that field to produce more. Yeah, and when you talk about, uh, you know, grid sampling, $10 an acre, that's fairly cheap as far as your fertilizer budget goes. It's not going to cost you very much MAP to pay for that $10 an acre. And taking those fertility products, whether it's MAP, whether it's Micro Essentials SZ, whether it's uh, sulfur, whether it's potash, and taking them away from the areas that don't need it and putting it in the areas that do need it really make a lot of sense. Now, switching gears a little bit, Mick, we talk about not putting fertilizer down where it's not needed. You've got a long history of results from your innovation plots that show we don't need to fertilize those areas much, but sometimes putting a little fertilizer on those areas where a lot of times we've said in the past don't need any, we're getting some pretty good yield response to those. We're seeing some tremendous yield response. Uh, you talk about our innovation sites. Uh, two of those innovation sites are some high fertility ground, uh, 35 to 45 part per million P. Uh, you think about that, and typically you, wouldn't, you and I wouldn't think that we'd see much response to P. Uh, we've seen a, a definite response to P over the past few years, and we're continuing to watch that and, and monitor that. Just 31 pounds of P is all we're adding to those, and we're seeing a response in those yeah. treatments. That's huge. Basically the equivalent of 60 pounds of MAP, or uh, I think it's about 80 pounds of microessentials SZ, and we're getting some really nice response to it. And, the, you know, we have to put down a little bit more microessentials SC to get that same pounds of P205. It costs a little bit more, but it's been more than paying for itself as well. It's yeah. actually your top yielder on your dry fertility program. Exactly. When we look at, at those results from our innovation sites the past two years, uh, MESZ has been right around 15 bushel right. advantage over an unfertilized check. $15 or 15 bushel, you can pay for a lot of fertilizer with 15 bushel. That's right. And in this case, we only have to pay for a little bit of fertilizer. All the rest is profit. So that's been the really nice thing about that. So we're putting on a, a very light rate, basically 80 pounds of microessentials SZ on high fertility areas and getting back 15 bushel across your innovation plots. And this is across four different sites, two different years, uh, duplications or replications at each site been pretty impressive. And that's one thing I do like to talk to growers about is that's why we put minimums in there. Number one, 
what we get back from those grid samples isn't perfect. We don't know exactly what the fertility is across that entire grid. You know, we make pretty maps with different colors on it. It looks like we really know what we're talking about. But in all honesty, you and I both know if we went 20 feet over and pulled another sample, there's a good chance we'd get some different results. That's why I like minimums. Right. You know, you, you think about that variability out there and, and I'll think back several years when I was a grad student and we were doing, we were trying to assess the variability in the soil and we ended up doing one foot by one foot squares that we were sampling and 250 feet long, poking a lot of holes in the ground and then going back to the lab and analyzing those. And we would see huge changes in that one foot segment of soil. We'll never be able to treat that variability out there. Two and a half acre grids is common in our industry. And the reason it's become common is because that's what our equipment allows us to be able to treat. And so we have to do some, I don't want to use the term guessing, but some estimating uh, to figure out what it is between those grid points. And if we have one that's higher P and one that's lower P, we know somewhere in there there's a transition. And so we use some estimation tools to, to figure that out. You know, when you talk about 250 bushel corn or 200 bushel corn and the crop removal for that, that's probably about the equivalent of uh, 200, maybe 150 pounds of micro essentials SC, somewhere in that range. Uh, could get closer to 250 at the higher end of that scale. But we're not asking growers in high fertility areas to put down that much fertilizer. We're saying put down somewhere around 50 or 75 pounds of micro essentials SC as a minimum. You're still going to mine, you know, more than double that going out in your truck, even triple that going out in your truck. Let's just don't mine it all the way to zero because there's a difference between what the labs extract in the soil test and true soluble plant available fertility. And that's one reason we kind of like the minimums. Exactly. Let's switch gears a little bit. You know, some growers with, uh, you know, we've got corn out there that seems like that windstorm over in Iowa helped prices a little bit, but we're still talking 310, 325, somewhere in there for corn. Guys are talking about, well, where can I cut back? And you know, we have that conversation every year, you know, back when guys were moving from $5 corn to $4 corn, it was a disaster. And we we're talking about cutting back. <clears throat> we like guys to try to out yield their way past a lot of, of decreases in, in crop price. But in the same respect, we need to be smart about where we spend our fertilizer dollars. Where do you go when a guy starts talking about where can I cut back on fertility? You know, you, I like to take them back to crop removal and say, you know, okay, we're going to, we're going to pull a 275 bushel crop off of this next year. Are we going to be able to recover from that? Should prices, corn prices stay the same for five years? That's going to be pretty tough if we don't, if we do cut our fertility back and then we're going to be mining that soil. I don't like mining soil. Uh, it's the one true thing that we have that generally we own, uh, and we sometimes we rent that ground. But if we own that soil, that's our money in the bank because we have to have the fertility there in order to raise a crop. Uh, if we're not, if we're going to cut back, don't cut back a hundred percent. Maybe seventy, cut back twenty five percent. Apply seventy five percent of normal. Right. I can live with that. I don't like it, but I can live with it. And, you know, that's a good thing for 
growers to have aware kind of in the back of their mind. So when you think about crop removal of phosphorus and pounds of P2O5 per bushel, somewhere in that 0 0.37, 0 0.40, a lot of times the number we use, it varies a little. Higher fertility fields tend to remove a little bit more. Lower fertility fields, frankly, there's just not as much phosphorus going in the grain because you don't have as much in the ground. You know, Tim, as I sit here and think about it, if we're going to cut back, we better make darn sure our pH is right. Right. And that would be... Let's spend the money on lime. Yeah. And let's make sure we have this pro this field limed correctly or at the correct pH so we have the most available nutrient out there if we are going to cut back. Yeah, you get kind of a double whammy when your pH is off. So if you've got a, a heavily acid soil, you've got pHs in the mid fives or the low fives. Number one, you've got phosphorus that's wanting to tie up with things like iron and aluminum in the soil. Number two, you've got biological activity that's been slowed because it's trying to live in an acid and it's not going to cycle the nutrients out of your organic matter like it should. And organic matter is a much bigger source of phosphorus, nitrogen, sulfur, micronutrients than guys give it credit for. Definitely. You know, you think about uh, the nutrient availability and when we get into that, as our pH gets off, then it affects the whole system. Uh, microbes are, are very important. There's a million in, in a handful of soil. And if we slow those down, that mineralization slows down. Uh, we, we cause a multitude of problems and we can't recover from that. Absolutely. What pH do you want a grower to try to get his fields to? What's your What's your sweet spot, Mac? Every Every agronomist got a little different answer. You know, I like that six three to six five pH. It seems to work the best. Uh, you know, and if we can keep it there and maintain it there, uh, I've went to my innovation sites and and looked at those pHs and and said, okay, we're gonna we're gonna put on a little bit of lime every year in the form of Pell Lime, it's easy product for us to play with in order to help us to recover from the nitrogen applications that are causing the pH drop. Yep. And so that's that's kind of my goal at those sites is keep that pH in that 6365 range. Yep, that's a good range to be at. I, I'll usually tell growers 6.2 to 6.8 is kind of my, what I'd call my sweet spot. You start getting to neutral and it just seems like there's more nutrient tie up. But, you know, we always talk about, well, seven is a good number. Well, yes, if you're going into alfalfa. Other than that, it seems like there's a little tie up in corn and soybeans. You know, and we have, and then we get over seven, we have other issues that, oh, yeah. that occur. And then we have herbicide carryover issues and other things like that. So, I stand, tend to stay in that lower 6.3 to 6.5. And like you said, everybody's got their own opinion. So we talk about phosphorus. We talk about limine. How about nitrogen? You, you let a guy cut back on nitrogen because he's concerned about prices? If you're going to cut back on nitrogen, you better be applying it as efficiently as, as possible because we never know ahead of time how much nitrogen we can lose. Yeah. We can give some estimates and that, and we can run some scenarios and go back last 10 years. But I've done that, you and I have done that together and we see that number bounce year to year and you never know. And honestly, I don't ever want the corn to have a bad day. Nitrogen is the most limiting nutrient. So I want to go out there and I want to apply, I want to have a little bit of nitrogen available. And then I want to, I, in my Innovation sites, I apply 70 pounds up front. And then I come back at, at side dress and, and apply again. 
if I could split apply even more, I would do even more. I'd right. love to have five applications of nitrogen out there. I don't have the capabilities or the time to do that. And I understand a grower doesn't always have that capability, but at least give a, a minimum with two shots. Uh, three's better, four and five gets you better and better and, and more efficient, less loss out there. Yep. Yeah, nitrogen should always be a, a more in-depth conversation than just, hey, I'd like to take 20 pounds off the top. <clears throat> you talk about where you're at, and you talk about what last year's crop was, what next, year, next year's crop's going to be, and then most importantly, what's your system? How are you applying it? How often are you applying it? What form are you applying it in? Are you using any inhibitors? There's a long conversation that needs to come around nitrogen because when it's all said and done, when the corn turns yellow, you're going to be really pissed off and you're going to be on my phone. So we're not just going to let that one slide. Exactly. <laughs> so let's go back to that crop removal. We talked about that 0 0.37, 0 0.4 pounds, P205 for corn. For soybeans, I use a number 0 0.8, 0 0.85, somewhere yeah. in there for soybean removal, pounds of P205 per bushel. So grower, you know, when you got the auto steer on on the combine, if you want to calculate out this a little bit, you got the yield monitor right there, you got your phone and calculator in your hand. Uh, potassium side of it, uh, corn 0.27 to 0.30, soybeans. This is a surprising one for growers. Soybeans take out a lot of potassium. Uh, point or 1.3 to 1.45, somewhere in that range. Again, it varies. So, Mr. Grower, pick somewhere you want to be in that. It's fine. Um, you know, over time, if you're keeping up and your soil test levels are going up or going down, if you're kind of matching it or not. So, keep that in mind. You need to watch your soil uh, samples over time and make sure you're keeping up with removal. Definitely. You know, you think about that removal rate on, on soybeans and and that does surprise a lot of people, but the potassium is important in the in those soybeans. It's it, it's equally important in that corn. We're just a little more efficient with that corn than they are in the soybeans. Let's talk a little bit. So some of these growers are going to start seeing some soil tests coming back. Let's give them a little reminder of kind of the numbers we're looking for. So we talked about soil pH. You know, we really like in that. You know, six three six five. That's a good place to be. Six two six eight. Ask any agronomist you want. You probably get a little different range, but it's generally going to be in the mid sixes. That correct. Most people are going to agree on that. If you're in the fives, you really need to be thinking about limon, phosphorus. Um, my number that I'm normally are going to talk to guys about. And again, I'm talking about the P1 Bray test. You need to look and see what your test is. The Malik three number. A lot of times a little higher. A little higher. The Olson number can be a little lower. But if you're using the P1 Bray. 25 part per million be my kind of target for a guy. You know, and Tim, that's where we're different. Mm -hmm. And you talk We're different about in a lot of ways, Mick. Let's <laughs> don't just stick with one. You talk about every agronomist having his opinion. I think where our yields are today, I think 30 is, is where we need to be. I like that 30 number better than I do 25. Uh, certainly, if we've got somebody down in the teens, I want to get them moved up closer to that 30 number. Yep. You know, the nice thing about setting yourself up with a number like 30 or 35 even is when things go the other direction, it is like a bank account. So if things are tough, you know, maybe you're paying some rent that eh, you, you don't want to give it up, but you're going to have to cut some money somewhere. Now you could mine a little bit and not hurt yourself too yes, much. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Potassium, where do you want to be? I like 200 or above, you know, uh, I think university, what do they say, 175? Depends which, win, you know, which depends university which, you look which at. Which university yeah. you look at, but uh, they like it a little lower. I like to see that 200, 200 plus. Uh, 
you know, in Nebraska, generally we don't have an issue with that. As we move into the Iowa soils, we have less potassium there. Uh, some of the Kansas soils, depends on the geography, are plenty of potassium and then others not as much. So I agree with you. 200 is the number that I kick out there as well. I do vary a little bit on sands or really heavy clays. If you're in a yes. sand, generally they, they just don't seem to hold it as well and you seldom see numbers in that 200 range on sand. So I'll tell a guy, you know, if you can get to 160. And to be honest with you, keep crop removal in mind. Make sure you're over crop removal. You know, if you've got a number at 90 part per million or 60 part per million, don't try to get it to 200 tomorrow. Let's just get north of crop removal and stay that way. And, and in the sand, I like to see a side dress potassium yeah. application in a dry form. You know, uh, get a little potassium out there at peak removal time. Absolutely. K-Mag is a great one to put out there a little ahead of time. Yep. Generally, those sands need the sulfur. They can use the magnesium. I'm a big fan of that one. KTS going through the pivot if you're putting some nitrogen and maybe thio through the pivot anyway. KTS is a good one to throw in there. Yeah. Um, sulfur. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we both laugh. Uh, it's a know. horrible test. The number that comes back just seems to vary every year. You know, this year, with it being a little drier, I expect the numbers are going to come back a little higher. Um, if you don't have, you know, 15 to 20 part per million out there, you should be applying sulfur. You should probably be applying sulfur anyway. Um, exactly. Don't and, even worry about it. You know, I think of my side dress application, sulfur's always in there. Yeah. And uh, that's the way I like to do it. And, and I seem to be holding those sulfur values that, that when I do that. Yeah. Zinc, where you, where you want a guy to be? Above a part per million. Yeah, and I I would say two. I, I like yeah. at least one and a half. I prefer two. Um, I know uh, if you've got two part per million, you really don't need zinc in a starter at all, right, Mick? Wrong. <laughs> <laughs> you know that answer. Uh, we still need that zinc and phosphorus in that starter so that we have, have a good symbiotic relationship with the uptake. They, they're taken in together in that plant and metabolism of that plant needs both in that starter fertilizer. Bree's starting to kick me because we're running out of time, but let's kind of finish on that. We know that uh, we we like our starter fertilizers, Mick. So let's talk about, you know, as you're thinking about, you might need to cut back somewhere. If you like the effect of a starter, and especially if you like the effect of early planting, um, a starter is somewhere you'd want to be real careful doing much cutback on. I honestly, I would never cut a starter uh, fertilizer because once again we don't know what's going to happen uh, you look at 2020 we put corn in the ground and we've got warm soils and everything's looking great and the month of april was warm and beautiful may turns in and clouds come in sun doesn't shine the soil temperatures invert on us and we go backwards in soil temps we caused a lot of stress on that crop early this year uh, in April when we were planting, we didn't know that that was going to happen. Uh, if I'd have cut back on starter, I'd have noticed it. Yeah, and it's kind of like what we talked about. You know, we talk about the lab test and the soil test values and all that. What the lab does is not what a, a small plant can do as far as being able to get nutrients out of the soil. So no, you, making it easy for that little plant makes a lot of sense. Having that phosphorus and zinc at that plant roots uh, early on is very important. Very good. 
Well, Mick, I think we've given our growers a little something to think about. Hopefully this, uh, you know, makes them come up with some questions in their mind and some further discussion they want to have. So if they want to reach out to their FSAs or to one of us, they're welcome to, and we can discuss a little further. Probably a key thing is, you know, we talk about these things a little bit in a vacuum on a radio program. None of it really has near as much value until we work it into that grower system. See what their soil test looks like, understand their history of fertilizer application, history of manure application, where are their soil test levels, you know, do they have recent soil samples? If they don't, that's always number one. It's time to go out there and sample it again. And then sit down and have a good conversation, specifically about their fields and their system. Exactly. All right. Well, with Mick Godekin, I'm Tim Mundorf. Thanks again for listening to this show. Thank you for joining us on Soil Talk. If you'd like to follow us, you can follow us on Twitter at ACS by CBA. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Central Valley Ag. If you'd like more information, visit cbacoop.com and you can see our agronomy focus blog series every other Thursday. With Soil Talk, this is Mick Godekin and Tim Mundorf.